0: Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Oh golly, it's been amazing. It's been so much fun. We're going to keep having fun. Now I would like to introduce myself as a storyteller. So to start off with, I'd like you to open your eyes or close your eyes as you wish. If you have never heard of Narnia, it is a magical land, and I would like to take you right to the very beginning of the creation of Narnia. We have two little children, Polly and Diggory, and they have by mistake landed themselves in this world that has not yet been made. And it goes like this. Maybe this is charn. I think we've got here in the middle of the night. This is not charn came the witch's voice. This is an empty world. This is nothing. And it really was uncommonly like nothing. There were no stars. It was so dark that they couldn't see one another at all. And it made no difference whether you kept your eyes open or shut. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful, he could hardly bear it. And then... Two wonders happened at the same time. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up in the scale, cold, tingly, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently, one by one, as they do on a summer evening. One moment, there'd be nothing but darkness, and the next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leapt out, single stars constantly constellation and planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen and heard it like Diggory did, you would have felt certain that it was the stars themselves who were singing, and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them be The voice on the earth was now louder and more triumphant, but the voices in the sky grew quieter, and the deep voice rose and rose till the air was shaking with it, and just as it swelled the mightiest and most glorious sound, it had yet produced a brand new sun arose that seemed to be laughing for joy as it came up, and it goes on, and as the lion appears in the light that has just arisen, the children look around and realize that it is a lion, shaggy bright and magnificent, facing the sun and calling it out with its mouth open in song. And as it's singing the deep notes, trees start appearing and light notes and little flowers start appearing. And then his voice turns into a wild, more like a tune, but a wild tune that makes them want to run and jump and shout and fight and hug all at once. And the earth starts bubbling and bursts open like little moles popping out and huge elephants bursting forth. And the lion calls them all together and they stand around him. And the lion, whose eyes never blinked, stared at the animals as hard as if he was going to burn them up with his mere stare. And he opened his mouth and breathed on them a long, warm breath that made them all sway and a swift flash of fire from the lion itself every drop of blood tingled in the ch- children's bodies as the fire flashed over the animals and the lions spoke for the first time, Narnia, 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 awake, love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking animals, be divine waters. Imagine being there, at the beginning of our world. It's so much easier to imagine an imaginary world and to put ourselves in this situation, but imagine being there when God himself, his voice, we sang of the word that is the creation, creative power of God, came and sang and the stars appeared and started to sing All of creation evolves in pursuit of what he said. Nature is defined. Science is defined as he speaks. And the creatures catch his breath and evolve to be what he told them they were. What about you? When it comes to God's creative voice reaching you, do you allow it to create you? Or does it come to a grinding halt As you say, no, 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 I will define my own identity. Thank you very much. I am the creator of myself. I will define my identity. We find it very difficult. Why are humans the only creatures in all of creation that struggle with allowing God to have the authority to define us with his words? I'll give you an example. Uh, The other day, God said to me, and I quote, Uh, yet you are so lovely. I was busy telling him exactly why I uh, felt not good enough and what I'd been doing wrong and just apologizing for who I was. And he interrupted me and said, yet you are so lovely. And you know what the scripture taught me that I was supposed to respond? Yes, I am truly his rose, the very theme of his song. And I don't know about you, but I found it very difficult to respond in that moment with those words. Why? Why is it that we feel that we get the right to define ourselves? We know that identity is very important. We're forever trying to define our own identities, define the identities of children. When I went into school in grade eight, I arrived at high school, and the first week, no classes, dedicated orientation week to helping us discover who we were now that we were in high school. And they asked us all sorts of questions. What do you like? What do you enjoy? joy? What, what are you good at? And a lot of the answers to that question, those questions no longer are true of me, because I would have said that I do not like spinach, but spinach has had a lot of good propaganda in the last few years. And actually, I found that it's rather delicious. And I, I found that how do we define who we are? Through that orientation week, we were given um, a little rosette that said, you are a winner." It was a very, very important rosette. We were, it, they were photostatted on red paper. We had to cut them out, out ourselves. But it was still a very, very prestigious award. You are a winner. And we had our uh, stickers, our name tags, on our clothes during that week. Mine said Jackie Stott. And so I stuck my sticker underneath my rosette. And for the next five years, I had it stuck on my wall in my bedroom, a red rosette of photostatted paper that said, you are a winner, Jackie Stott. Sometimes I believed it, and sometimes it made me quite irritated because I knew that it wasn't at all true. You see, psychologists tell us that there's this thing called cognitive dissonance. When uh, somebody says something to you or even you chant something over yourself, but you don't really believe it, it actually does more harm than if you hadn't said that thing. So saying to myself, you are a winner when I feel like a winner is great. But saying to myself, you are a winner when I don't feel like a winner is actually causing the opposite effect because my brain says, I measure what I've just said and it is not true. That, That statement is not true. And besides the fact, we're, ch- we're changing all the time. I mean, when I was at school, I w- was flat-chested, skinny little leg ballerina. And then I f- went to varsity and I got glasses. I actually didn't need glasses. I just found them and I thought it made me look like a student. So I wore them throughout my university <laughs> time. And then I felt pregnant and I started to look like a mom. And then I had boobs because I was breastfeeding. And now I've got no boobs Anymore and skinny legs, but I can't dance anymore. And I'm not too sure what shape exactly does this fit. My husband tells me I need to perhaps think about picking up, uh, try athlons. <laughs> I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> but but who are we? What shape do we fit? Are we defined by what we like, what we're good at, what we look like, the shape of us? Are we defined by our relationships? I always used to be Kevin's sister growing up, and then I became Richard's wife. Uh, I've got a very sporty son, so then I became Jed's mom. More recently, I've become known as Kiara's mom. Our daughter has hit the News 24 because she has had an incredible miracle in her life. Uh, and I also am often referred to as Hope's mom. Now, I do not have a daughter called Hope, but while she was going through her accident, there was a slogan going around, keep hope alive, and so a lot of people were praying for hope and call me Hope's mom. (laughs) What are we defined by is what I'm asking you, and why is there a disconnect between God's definition of us and who we say we are? it's very important to know who we are. Uh, during this time, uh, we had an accident in December and our daughter was expected to die three days later. And uh, during, I'm not, this is not a substory, story, I don't have to get all emotional, but just wanting, wanting to break into that story for a moment, uh, we went on Boxing Day and spent the whole day waiting for Chiara to die. By the end of the day, she hadn't died. And our two options were death or a life of a vegetative coma. So by Boxing Day night, I was flat out terrified. I had no idea if I had what it took to be what this next season might require of me. And we were sitting around with Mark and uh, a friend, I think a friend to this church, Rory Dyer... And uh, they were having dinner and chatting about something else. And I just turned to my husband, Rich and I said, Baby, I'm so scared. I'm, I'm so scared. And Rory overheard me. And he, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Jackie, when you were knit together in your mother's womb, you were made for greatness. Greatness is woven into every fiber of your being. Jackie, your moment of greatness has arrived. It is time to step into what God has made you for. You see, we don't know when these moments are going to arrive, when we are going to be tested to our core. Who am I? Do I have what it takes? Am I going to be able to manage? Or who am I? Why did God not heal my child? Who am I? Why have I not made it yet? Why am am I not living the life I thought I was capable of living? Who am I? Am I not who I thought I was? But above all of those questions, who gets to say who I am? Who is the one that gets to say who I am? We believe here in this church in a a group of writings called the Holy Scriptures or the Bible, uh, a whole bunch of books. And in it, we hear all about how God created the earth and his incredible wisdom and how he is redeeming creation to himself right in the beginning of creation. What went wrong that made us think that we had to come up with the answer for I am and the blank? That made us think it was our job to come up with that answer. So right in the beginning, the very first people that were created were Adam and Eve. And God created Adam and Eve like he created the rest of his creation. Spoken word, breath, they became what he said they were. And then he gave them a choice. He said, the rest of creation will continue to obey me forever. You have a choice of whether or not you want me to be your God and be your judge and get to tell you who you are. I'm putting a tree in your midst where you live, and you get to decide if you eat of this tree, then you are becoming a person who is able to discern good and evil, and you can become your own judge if you would prefer. And so I'm going to pick up our scripture reading right from there. So if you'll follow on the screen with me for Genesis, from Genesis 3 verses 4. And a deceiver in the form of a serpent has come to trick Adam and Eve into eating of this tree. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't die if you eat it, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? I imagine God's tone of voice to be similar to my tone of voice when one of my adopted children came up to me and said, mommy, He said, I'm adopted because my mommy didn't love me. And I said, who told you that you were adopted because your mother didn't love you? I cannot undo what you have just been told. I cannot reposition you to see correctly that you are adopted because your mother did love you, (laughs) not because your mother didn't love you, but you can never unhear or unthink what you have just thought. And I can imagine God going, oh, the ramifications. Who told you that you were naked? Because up until then, God had been judged, and God had told them whether or not they were good enough. And in this moment, Adam and Eve pick up the gavel to their own lives, the judge's hammer that he hammers with to say, doot, 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 order in the courts, you know, the gavel. You with me on the gavel? Doot, doot, doot. Beep, beep, beep. (laughs) All the young moms understand that joke. Who told you that you were naked? They've picked up the gavel to their own lives, and they have immediately judged themselves unworthy. The first judgment they make on themselves before they have done a single thing wrong is, oh my goodness, I'm unworthy. I'm naked. I'm as hard. I'm ashamed. I'm not who I should be this is not right. Why? Why before they've done one thing wrong, are they judging themselves unworthy? Because they have taken a step by eating that fruit into the judge's booth. And as they stand in the judge's booth with the gavel in their hand, they look around and they realize, I am completely unqualified for this job. I'm completely incapable of originating anything. I'm a created being standing here in the judge's booth, pretending that I have the ability to judge between right and wrong and between my own worth or worthiness and or worthlessness. And and I shouldn't shouldn't be here. I'm, I'm in the wrong place. This is not where I belong. And yet they've judged themselves naked and God can never undo what they've seen. You see, we intrinsically know that we're not... God. (laughs) We intrinsically know that nothing originates with us. That song that has been playing and will be playing throughout this weekend, You Say I Am uh, by Lauren Daigle, she's singing a song and she's saying, am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? And she wrote that song after receiving one of the greatest awards that she will ever receive in her musical career. She stood on stage, thousands of people applauding her, and she went the next morning on her knees and said, God, I'm not what they think I am. I'm, I'm just a girl. I, I don't have, I'm, I'm not a God. I, I can't just produce music. I can't produce life. I, I all I can do is, is be what you tell me to be and do what you tell me to do. All I can be is an open vessel to you. I feel so unqualified for what the people are saying I am. Sometimes when people are applauding us, it's even more difficult for us to know where we stand and who we are than when people are calling us up and telling us that we're not good enough. I did my uh, thesis in genetic engineering and specifically around programming computers to be intelligent. And um, the way it works is you you put in lots and lots of information into a computer and then after it it forms a pattern and after that the computer is able to judge whether the next thing coming in fits into that pattern or not because it has so many examples of that pattern. So that would be how uh, your new face recognition works. (laughs) She saw my husband the other day. He was talking to me and he was going, like, what are you doing? I'm just programming my phone. So we program things so that they would understand a lot of patterns and information so that it will recognize the next thing. We do the same thing with ourselves. We want to program because we now realize, all right, I'm in the judge's booth. I have no idea how to judge. I literally do not know whether something is good or bad other than taking in a whole bunch of information. So as we grow up, all through our lives, we're processing information and trying to figure out what is good and what is bad. And we love rules. We like, okay, these rules tell me that this is good academically and this is good commercially. And if I want to be beautiful, this is what I've got to do here. Uh, I, when I was a teenager, was going through the exact same thing. And a friend of mine went overseas to England where they had things that we have never heard of here in South Africa. And one of them was a little magazine that she brought back to me entitled, How to Be a Sex (laughs) Bomb. I can't believe they make magazines on this. How to be a sex bomb. I will learn everything in this magazine off by heart. And so I paged through this magazine and learned all sorts of strange things that uh, I should probably not repeat in this room. One of them was how to have feet that are so sexy, that when somebody sees them, they will immediately want to jump into bed with you, <laughs> and so I read very, with much interest, what my feet should look like, if somebody wanted to make love to me, after seeing my feet, and you must loaf a lot, with a, and scrape your heels, and no cracked, uh, and one of the things they mentioned, is that you should have uh, no hairs on your toes, okay, I have I'm just not saying that out loud because, I mean, nobody who's not actually in this room deserves to know that, right? So I have hairs on my toes. So I was thinking, oh, my goodness. And so I plucked them for years, very diligently. Fast forward six, seven years. I'm at university. I've met the love of my life sitting in front of me. And I'm in the car with my mom and dad. My dad's driving. My mom's in the front seat. I'm sitting in the middle. This boyfriend that I'm sure is the one is sitting next to me. And I'm so relaxed. I've got my feet up in the center console. And my mom reaches over and starts stroking the hair on my big toe. (laughs) Now, in defense of my mom, this was a complete act of love and adoration. As she saw my feet, didn't live at home anymore, her little girl, and she just saw those few black hairs that just needed to be stroked to be going in the same direction. I was like watching a movie with my boyfriend that focused on my big toes' hairs. (laughs) And I said, Mom! What are you doing? And he kindly said, lovey, she's just just loving you, just leave her. Well, I'm pleased to announce that I now have a man who is willing to go to bed with me, whether or not I've plucked the hairs on my big toe. But the fact of the matter is we run our lives through these databases that we've stored up over years Possibly through things as ridiculous as how to be a sex bomb, or even much of my formation of what a girl should be was formed from rude jokes that teenage boys had told. That I thought, oh, wow, I, I, I mean, I didn't realize that it was a thing. I, I'll be sure not to do that. I would hate to be that kind of girl. I'd hate to be a ball and chain. I I don't even know what that means, but I I will never do that. And and we're programmed to say this is what it looks like if we're doing it well. And we want to do it well because from birth we've been judging ourselves and we're just never quite good enough. We never quite measure up and we desperately want to. So any rules that show us how to earn badges or how to earn awards or how to earn (laughs) being good enough. We latch onto and try and become in whatever form that may be for you. And we do the same thing with religion. We do the same thing. We take the rules and we say, okay, so, so if I do that, God will love me. The church will love me. Maybe even Mark van Pletzen will love me. That would be amazing. I'm going to do all of the things that they want me to do so that I can be loved, so that I can be good enough. There is an ancient book in this Bible, probably the oldest of all of them, that is called Job, about a man called Job. And he unfortunately fell into the same era. He was a righteous man. He was keeping the rules amazingly. He was a good, good man so good, in fact, that there came a time where Satan said to God, I would like to have an opportunity to test him. So whatever happened there, theologically, we're not going to touch on that right now. But the fact of the matter is Job went through some of the the most hectic things that any human being could go through. In one day, he lost all his children. Not one child, his entire family. That same day, as the messenger was busy telling him about all of his children dying in the same accident of a collapsed roof, he heard about fires that had ravaged through his barns and completely destroyed him commercially. And if that wasn't enough, his health started to fail, and he found himself in the dirt, absolutely and utterly broken. And as he sits here, some friends come alongside him. And they do what, in my opinion, and in my experience, is the right thing to do when somebody has experienced utter tragedy. I'm going to read to you from Job chapter 2. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place Eliphaz, the Temanite, all all their names, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw, saw that his suffering was very great." Mark was that guy for us in the week while Kiara was in a coma. No words necessary, no words to say. Just sat with him in silence. And after a week, when Job finally found words to say, the Bible says Job opened his mouth and cursed the day that he was born damn that day, damn that day, may it be not a day. I wish that day was stricken right out of the calendar. I wish my mother had never nursed me on her lap. I wish I had died as my head entered this world. I wish it was never to be. May anything that that supports that day be cursed forevermore. I hate the fact that I was born. I hate my life. And then his friends fall into an error because they start to reason with him and help him to co-judge with him why this has happened to him. Well, well, maybe Job, maybe Job, you've done something wrong. Let's think about it. Let's think about the things that you may have done to cause this. What it what and job says I've done nothing I cannot understand why this would happen to me and back and forth each each friend each of the three gets a turn to accuse him and and three times he, he he rebuts the accuser he says it's not fair I didn't do any of those things absolutely not and after pages and pages and pages of them arguing over whether or not he is good enough of them co-judging and judging against each other and thinking that they must be in the judge's seat and surely there's something that job is done to deserve this, and they must be able to understand it. Eventually, Job stands up, and he has his final defense, and he says, oh, if only it were in the days of old. You know, when I used to walk into the courts, the young mans would retreat in, in honor of me, and the old men would rise up. The kings would so honor me that they would cover their mouths so that they would not speak when I was speaking. I was the bones of the people that needed to stand up. I was the of the orphans that needed to talk. I was the sun that shone when I spoke. It was like the rain dripping on the courts with my wisdom that came from God. Men listened to me and waited for my counsel. They they were silent as I spoke. I thought I surely have earned the right to die in my nest, right in old age with my children around me like a stately tree whose roots go deep. I thought surely, surely this is my lot. This is what I deserve. And he continues to defend himself in his final speech. And he says, There is just no ways. Ask my wife if I have ever looked at another woman. Ask the community if I have ever given my wife to somebody else. My servants are treated as equals knowing that God made us both. When they had a complaint against me, I listened to their complaints and I heard them. I would make sure that they were fed. If there was anybody hungry that came to my gate, they would eat. I have never done anything wrong in my life. I have obeyed all the rules. It's not fair. And then Job has his drop drop the mic moment. And the scripture simply says, the words of Job are ended. (laughs) Thank you. I thought I'd put that one up for you. The words of Job are ended and he drops the mic, but not the gavel. And then there's one young man, not one of the three friends, a young man, Elihu, who says, If I may, seeing as you've dropped the mic and this whole debate is over, Job, you've indicated that you've never done anything wrong and that you don't deserve this. You've judged yourself and you've judged yourself righteous. I get that. He says, Job actually want to read you his words. He says, behold, I am toward God as you are. I also love God. I'm also for God, just like you. And I'm also pinched off from a piece of clay. I'm also just made by God. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy on you. But Job, in judging yourself as righteous, you've even gone so far as to judge God as unfair. Tonight, I just want to have the opportunity of being a little bit like Elihu to say, my words don't need to sit on you heavily. Like you, I'm just pinched off from a piece of clay. But is there a possibility that in judging of yourself in choosing to keep the gavel and judge your own life, you've also given yourself permission to be the judge of God. Will we give up our gavels? And then there's this amazing moment when God appears in the courtroom and he answers Job and he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Stand up for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any idea, where were you? Tell me, where were you when I called out the stars and gave them their song? Where were you? Where were you when I decided that the sea should come this far and no further? Answer me this, do you know how to keep your heart beating? You want to be judge? You don't even know what happens after death. You're guessing. You don't know, have never explored the deep labyrinths of death. You have no idea what comes after that. You were not there in the beginning, and you have never been to the end. If I gave you a fully formed bird without life, with all the ingredients there in position, could you make it live? Are you judging me with words without knowledge? How is it possible that you could possibly think, other than if you had infinite ignorance, that you could be set up as judge? I will question you and make it known, will you even, God says, put me in the wrong? Will you even condemn me? so that you may be in the right. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? God, it's not fair. My child shouldn't have been the one. You have done wrong. You have not done right by me, God. I did not deserve this. The words I wrote in those days were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would you do this? I have, I have given you everything. I have given you my life. I have given you my children. Even now you know that she belongs to you. And you can take her if you want. Why would you test us like this? But God calls us to attention to drop the gavel and adjust our gaze. It actually doesn't matter who you are so much as who gets to say that you are. The question is all wrong. As we adjust our gaze and look to God, even in that moment, as I continue to write on that day, but you, God, have the right to direct our lives. You, God, are good and deserve to be the leader and deserve to be the judge of what is right and wrong. Continue to have our lives today as you have always had them before. God steps in and reestablishes his right to judge. And when God says to you, yet you are so lovely. When the scripture says to you, Listen, my darling, you are so beautiful. You are beauty itself to me. And we say, God, you have observed wrong. And God says, I was not observing. I was creating. God's word is a word of creation, not a word of observation. This evening, I want to challenge you ladies to give up your gavel. You were given it when you were born And that is the thing that we need to repent of more than anything else. Adjust your gaze. Job answered God eventually in chapter 42. And he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said to me, hear and I will speak. I'll question you and you make it known to me. God, I'm sorry. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And this word despise myself is not I hate myself. It's I, I no longer regard myself. I disregard myself and look at you. I adjust my gaze. God, it is ludicrous. To think of me, who was not there when you taught the, the, the stars how to sing. It is ludicrous to think of me, judging myself, let alone anything else. I repent. And Job repents. He repents, and I was wondering if I could invite you, like Elihu did, to repent tonight of holding that gavel and to adjust your gaze. Because something beautiful happens when he repents. He is forgiven. There's a sacrifice that's made. He sacrifices animals. God asks him to. The sacrifice has been made for us as we've sung. Jesus, the sacrifice for this very sin, the sin of holding onto our gavels, is the number one and the overarching sin of all humanity. And then, if you know the story, he is given back double blessing of everything he had, double the amount of kids, double the amount of money, double the amount of health, double the amount of joy, double the amount of everything. And look what happens if we follow him and our Job's daughters. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. This evening, I want to invite you to have an inheritance With Job's daughters, that is double everything else before, if we will repent. And the third point that I would like to make tonight to give up your gavel, to adjust your gaze, and to be God's Word. Whatever He says you are, believe it, become it, be formed by it, be the very Word of God. I spoke right at the beginning of us changing shape and boobs and bellies and all the things that change as we grow and as our lives change and as we get older. But what if we were the changing shape that fit around the breath of God? What if we were whatever God called us to in the moment? Do you know that you will never be given a title from God that I'm aware of? I am an engineer or I am Whatever you have thought, oh, if only God will, will, will cement this, then I'll know that that's what I am. He's not going to do that because you will be something fresh and new and beautiful, not only every season of your life, but just about every moment of your life. Can you imagine as God looked at Adam, looked at Eve and said, I'm going to breathe into Eve what Adam needs right now. What if we could look at our family situations and at our husbands and at our children and say, God, breathe into me what they need, what you would like to give them. I'll be that. What if we could look at every situation of our lives and schools and businesses and say, God, what am I today? What am I in this moment? Let me catch your breath and be formed by it. Let me believe it, become it, be formed by it, and I will be the body Of you, God, on earth. I'm going to invite the band up just as we take a moment to maybe respond to this word. Would you stand up and close your eyes. I'm I'm asking you to stand uh, partly in case anyone's asleep. (laughs) Wake up. (laughs) And uh, secondly, just so that we can give a little bit of uh, respect and honor to those who would like to respond, but are perhaps feeling a little bit vulnerable so that we can stand around them. Just as we we close our eyes, and I'm going to ask you right now, as we're singing, if you would like to physically give up your gavel. And this might be for the first time. Perhaps you've never thought of the fact that you are against God because you have chosen to remain in the judge's booth of your own life. Maybe that's the first time you've ever considered that. Or maybe you've been following God for a while, but you realize that sometimes you you keep the gavel. I'd like to invite you to actually take the bold step of coming all the way up to the front and just... in a, in a way that just shows something metaphorically to just drop something here. Just, just drop something here and say, God, I give you my gavel. As the music is playing, at any point during the song, if you'd like to come up and drop your gavel metaphorically and say, God, I give up your gavel. And or if you would like to come forward or where you are st- seated or standing and lift up your eyes and say, God, I adjust my gaze. God, I've been looking everywhere. I've been looking everywhere to find out who I am. I've been asking people. I've been filling out questionnaires. I've been reading books. God, I'm, I'm sorry. Who are you? I want to know who you are. I am whatever you say I am in this moment. Adjust your gaze and look at him. And then just breathe. Just breathe. Believe God's word over you. Become God's word into you. Be formed by God's word as you go out tonight.